millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Secret Library Podcast. I'm Caroline Donahue. As a lifelong book lover, I've been hanging out with books as long as I can remember. Here on the show, we're going inside the world of books and learning what's involved in going from brilliant idea to finished manuscript and what it takes to get it out in the world. You'll hear from authors, publishers, editors, and all kinds of professionals whose work brings you what you read every day. The Secret Library Podcast is sponsored by Muse Monthly, a subscription box for literature and tea lovers. Get a brand new novel custom paired with a full box or tin of tea on your doorstep every month. Visit musemonthly.com and use the code SECRET00, all one word in all caps, for 10% off your subscription. We're back with another episode of the Secret Library Podcast, and I am delighted to have a kindred spirit on today, Heidi Fiegler, who is a writer and editor for Publishers and Creatives. She does the deep thinking that's needed to transform ideas into children's books. She believes books have the power to spark our curiosity, encourage us to play, and make us all feel a little less alone. It's been her pleasure to work on more than 300 titles, oh my God, for clients ranging from Target to Barnes & Noble. The books she creates are quirky, playful, highly visual, and often philosophical. Her credits include 180 nonfiction books in partnership with Time for Kids, 90 picture books, chapter books, and middle grade novels, plus a wide variety of activity books and art and craft books. After working in publishing for over 10 years, she's really excited to see her own picture books and chapter books making their way into the world. Thank you so much for coming on, Heidi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Okay, uh, 300 titles. I just, I'm sorry, it's going to be the elephant in the room until I say like how, you. everyone can't see you, but I can see you. And you look like you're the same age as me, if not younger. And how did you involve yourself with 300 titles? Like how, over how much time did this happen? This is 10 years, 300 titles? I know, that sounds insane. And I, I had an interview once where someone asked me the same question. <laughs> Like, I just want to say those are short books. Um, a lot of those are very short books. They're not 180 page or 300 page novels or whatever. They're children's books. So, you know, there's an innate short brevity to them, um, which is good. But a lot of those are series where, you know, once the publisher decides to make a commitment to it, they are pouring themselves into it. So, did I oversee every single second of each of those 300 books? No, but I touched each of those books and I did something to them. And I was usually the series editor or uh, the developmental editor. Um, it Some I was super involved with, some I was a little bit involved with, but I feel like it's legitimate to say I've worked on over 300 books and by working on all of those different stages of it, for whatever length of time or however much I dug into it. Like, I just learned a lot about all different kinds of books. <laughs> you can't avoid that after 300 books. <laughs> no, I can't imagine. I just, okay, that helps because, you know, it's just like, what am I doing with my life? I get up, I have breakfast, you know. And, and over here, you've got 300 books you're working on. It's incredible. 
So what, what did you learn? Like, what are the things that have emerged over this period? Like, what are some patterns you're seeing in children's books and, and the trends as they unfold? I work on a lot of nonfiction, um, but I also work on fiction. And I think even when you're working on nonfiction, it's helpful to have a story element to it or be taking some kind of narrative approach to it um, or be using literary elements to engage the reader. I'm an editor, so of course I love words, but it's so important to have that visual element to the books. There, there's going to be additional information that you can convey with the illustrations or the photographs, but also that's that's how you're engaging the reader. That's that's their initial visceral reaction to the book is going to be the cover and flipping through the illustrations. And it kind of took me a while to make peace with that, I think, as someone that just reads a lot and loves words and loves to read. I don't see any problem with picking up a 500 page book and like digging in and being like, here's a lot of words. I love it. But most people, when they pick up a book, are flipping through and they're looking for a sketch or an illustration or a, a picture that resonates with them or pulls them in for whatever reason. So understanding how those things work together is something I've learned. And also, um, I think this is not the most upbeat observation, but it's something I keep coming back to is just there's a lot of books out there, like 300 books is a lot of books for me to have worked on. And that's like a microscopic portion of what's out there. And so you you want to make your book meaningful. You want to make it stand out or prove its worth. Like, why is it showing up in the midst of a million books? It, that's a lot of pressure when you're starting a book or when you're thinking about it, but I, it's something I'm always thinking about. Yeah, I can imagine. So when you're talking about nonfiction books, I'm going to sound like a moron, but are those mostly science books for children or history books or... I'm thinking of books that I enjoyed as a kid, and it was like those pictorial representations of Egypt, and I was obsessed with that book. I don't even remember who produced it, but I looked at those like, you know, here's the side section of a temple. Is it that kind of thing in the nonfiction genre? What else is involved? Um, There's science. Science is huge. Kids are really into animals and um, just the natural world. Like that's a part of their daily life that they recognize, and, and it's um, an easy thing for them to to start to study on their own. Um, history biographies are huge, um, but it's also like more niche things. Like I'm working on a book right now about henna designs for oh, wow. second graders, and I'm going to write another one about tiny houses. And those are going to talk about symmetry and um, different shapes, which you know, like, is that the main takeaway you're going to have after you read the book is like, I know what symmetry is, maybe, maybe not. But like, I'm hoping the experience of reading about henna will be visually engaging and culturally interesting and all those elements. Um, and then there's also like humorous books, like, um, you know, I worked on 101 Things to Do While You Poo, which had like a ton of fun facts about poo. <laughs> and that I'm a big believer in like, that's an okay book for a kid to read. Whatever is going to get them reading and get them excited to be a reader is a great thing for them to be reading. Also, it will encourage toilet training, I would assume. <laughs> I think you, like, if you knew me during the months when I was working on that book, I would have just been like a plethora of poo puns and jokes. It was like unstoppable in conversation. And I'm sure if you read that book, like as a kid, you just, you probably know those jokes already, but after you read that, you're just like nonstop. (laughs) 
I'm kind of dying to read it now. I'll be honest. <laughs> I don't think that's just for poster. kids. <laughs> oh, there's a pull-out poster? Yes. Uh, I think my nephew is going to get that one for Christmas. Yeah. Good thing he is not old enough to listen to the show yet and find out. Because I, I feel like all this attention on children's books, it feels like, do you feel like people are increasingly seeing them as a valid part of the reading population? Because I remember being in maybe second grade and having to do a report on Ponce de Leon. I will never forget this. And I read this book. My dad helped me read this book at night. We were going to bed. And I'm not joking. 87% of the sentences began with Ponce. Ponce did this. Ponce then went here. Ponce explored this place. And my dad and I were like, we're going to die if we hear Ponce one more time. We're just going to throw the book out the window. And I just feel like if someone like you had been working with them on this book, you would have said, are you joking? You can't start every sentence with Ponce. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like the like children's books as adults are getting into them and Harry Potter and all of these books that are engaging a wider audience, it feels like they're getting more attention and more care put into them, particularly at the middle grade. Am I just making well, that's that up? Right. I think that's very right. And I think... It's also a reflection of some of what's happening on adult level, too. Like, you see more blurring of the lines between fiction and nonfiction, or you see more creative nonfiction essays that are just like a deep dive into some esoteric topic that you wouldn't have thought was that interesting, but they've made it a metaphor for, you know, rising to a challenge or whatever it is. Like, People are exploring different ways of conveying information that is not as dry as it used to be on all different levels. And that goes for children's books as well. And I think there's also the added sense that kids can handle it and that our goal is a lot of times, at least in education circles, they talk about books that are meant to teach kids to read or teach kids and you're reading to learn. So, like, are you supposed to take books about insects? Well, that's a dry book. But if you're supposed to take away the experience of reading about insects and being like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait to go outside and look at something new and green and weird, that's a different kind of book. And I think people are leaning more towards that or at least accepting that that experience is a valuable one for kids and that they want to give that to kids. And the other thing I would just say is, like, There's a lot of understanding now, I think, that children are not just supposed to absorb all this information and then go out into the world and somehow then make the jump from, like, being told exactly what to do to living as adults. That's not happening. And so instead, like, now they're getting to hear, like, about tiny houses. Like, 50 years ago, someone would have thought, like, does a kid care what a tiny house is? Like, that's not part of their experience. That's not part of their daily world let's talk about balls and like the swing set or whatever it is but they're people too they're just small they just have less experience but they're going to have the same questions when they're older they're going to have the same experiences we have when we're older or they're going to have experiences we can't even predict and so like giving them chances to step out of their regular world and see something new, like, that's really important. I think that used to just be a fiction thing, and now it's becoming a nonfiction thing. I would have died to know about tiny houses when I was little. <laughs> died. I would have then insisted on having one. To live I in think one. it's probably, <laughs> like, why do I have to live in this house with you guys? Can I live in a tiny house in the yard? That would have been, <laughs> I almost want to go back in time and live that childhood. 
Yeah, I think they would have said, well, then go ahead and build it. And yours would have had a lot of books in it. It would have, had, it would have been made out of books, I think, would have been the thing. It would have been like Adobe, all books. Yeah. yeah, I can't even imagine. I think that's great. And then, so you've then started writing your own picture books and chapter books. So how yeah. are you, and you've had one come out recently. Uh, I have a series come out, uh, called Up Close, which ha- that's a nonfiction series. Um, and there's Up Close, Reptiles and Amphibians coming out soon. Up, t- up Close, Fern Feathers. Uh, before that was Up Close, um, uh, Sea Creatures. Um, and they're just, they're uh, highly visual. There's this macro and micro photography. So it's like things you would see under the microscope, but also like things that are magnified like 5,000 times or something crazy. I don't know what. And they're interesting fun facts. Not like a fun fact like a fly can jump 10 feet or whatever that would be. But like things that are just um, very uh, visceral and weird. Um, Things about like these worms under the sea that have fights with each other and get into knots with their bodies. Like that kind of stuff is intriguing to me. Oh, yeah. Um, And then I'm working on a series called No Nonsense, which is also nonfiction, and that'll come out next year. Um, And those are like fun guides to regular topics you would have to learn about in school, but with a fun twist. Um, So like grammar and measurement. And then I'm also working on my own fiction. Um, I have a writing partner that I work on a chapter book series with, and we're developing that. And I have a bunch of picture book manuscripts that um, I feel like are really close uh, to being sold or going out into the world, but I can't report on any of those yet, but I'm crossing my fingers. Well, we'll keep keep us posted and we'll share it. Yeah. So how, I mean, one of the things that you're really great at, and this was a way that we originally met, was like took you up on your generous offer on your site to send in a link to your site and to say, you know, I'll share what your your next book idea could be. How do you transform, it means you send your bio, transforming ideas into, into book ideas. How, how do you get that superpower? Cause it's clear that it's one you have. And what do you think goes into something, making it like an ah book idea? Mm. Um, a lot of times a book idea comes to me as a title. I guess I'm used to thinking in titles. Um, so I, I am looking for ideas that are catchy, but simple enough that you get it immediately. Um, and I'm not one of those people that really struggles to come up with ideas. I have a million ideas and a long list. <laughs> um, but I am trying to percolate on them more and think about, like, is this something I want to devote a lot of time to? Because it is going to take time to develop it. Um, and is it a book or an idea that feels like something I personally need to write or, like, I'm going to have my own unique spin on it? Um, I think that's important. Also, of course, like, are there already 20 million books out there on this kind of topic? But um, even more than that, like, what I mean by doing that deep thinking is thinking about what are the thoughts and feelings you want to leave the reader with and working backwards from there, either to make an outline or uh, do a rough draft or do a plot or whatever, like, just kind of figuring out, am I even saying something that I mean to be saying? Am I leaving them with those thoughts and feelings that or what's driving this idea. Um, and it's not a given, you know, just because you have the idea doesn't mean that's the effect it's going to have on the reader. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. 
So how do you, so you think about both the idea and the effect you want to have, like, how do I want this reader to feel at the end of reading this book and then work backwards? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do that like throughout the writing process or the editing process. It's um, something I kind of have to think about at each draft because it's very, very easy to lose that along the way and be like, wait, and not even that the book can't evolve. Like that's not to say that I set it to write a book about a punk and then it ended up being about this super meek character. That's okay. But like along the way, I'm being conscious of like what effect is the text that I actually have on the page having on the reader that's that's where like a lot of times the disconnect is is someone has a great idea but what happens on the page is not reflecting that idea it's maybe something that is a minor idea is getting too much attention and so we need to pull back from that maybe something that is kind of blurring the message or just um muddying the themes or something like that isn't necessary to the story maybe that can come out maybe you need another thematic element so that you're actually saying something meaningful and not just trite and like superficial you know all all along the way I'm kind of looking at it that way so these are all amazing things to think about and I think there is this tension that I see around writing and that I feel around writing myself that is about how do you both stay open and and not worry enough about the reader so that you can continue writing yet at the same time consider the reader so that the finished product is going to be appealing to them like how do you strike that balance I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I don't know Um, I know what you're talking about (laughs) and I definitely I'm still figuring this out. Like, I want to be someone that enjoys the process of writing and not just have this weight on me of like, what is the reader going to think? Or what is my agent going to think? Or the editor going to think? Or whoever it is. Um, Because that is kind of paralyzing. And it's not necessarily going to create great creative work. You do need that messy period before you get to the revision period. And... Part of that is, I think part of where I'm finding progress there is choosing the right idea to work on or working on something I really believe in so that at the very least, I'm enjoying that part of the process. You know, I'm researching something I care about or I'm writing about a character that I like or think is interesting or something. Um, If I'm just doing it to go through the motions or because I feel like, well, I had this idea, I might as well see it through. That's when I'm like, angry (laughs) when I start thinking about well how will the reader react to this I'm like I don't care (laughs) you know let's move on finish it yeah Yeah, no that makes a lot of sense I mean I think something that we've been talking about on here with a few people that it sounds like this tension between having your writer brain turned on and your editing brain turned on and I think that writer's block is having them both turned on at the same time. And as somebody who's been both a writer and an editor, I know maybe we talked about this before, like having an editor support group about how to deal with editing instincts while trying to write. Do you find that you have to forget that you're an editor while you're writing at all? Yeah, definitely. And it's not even just the the sense like oh I need to make this perfect somehow or I need to get this publication ready or whatever that 
final product expectation is. It's also like, it's more psychological in terms of feeling like I should know how to do this. Like I should have gotten this done in one draft. Like I know how to do this. Like let's get it done. It's just different when it's you, the one creating something from scratch and putting yourself out there and it's slow and it's messy and that's okay. But it's when you're used to working on deadlines and working with all the feedback that comes from being in house or, you know, having a bunch of people weigh in on a manuscript, like it's very hard to turn that off and not be thinking about, okay, I can anticipate this is what the feedback is going to be. And how do I possibly resolve that right now? I have no idea. It's okay. Like you still get 20 more drafts to figure it out, but you kind of have to remind yourself of that. (laughs) Yeah. So you, um, you teach a number of other things, which I think are super useful for people to know about. We'll talk about the one you're offering really soon at the end. But one thing you've talked about is doing book mapping. And I'm wondering how book mapping as a concept plays into this sort of tension of getting something written on your own, because you're in-house as an editor and an idea developer and developmental editor, but you're doing your own books outside of a publishing house, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm freelance. Um, When I work with publishers, um, I'm still a freelance editor, but I am working as a developmental editor. And um, I originally started doing book mapping for editing purposes. Like when I would get a manuscript, I was like, I don't know where to start here. Like there's just a lot going on. Like let's let's pull this apart and figure out what's going on. But um, it is actually a useful tool um, just personally because it Part of what it does is gives you that objective way to step back and see what's actually on the page versus what's in your mind. So a book map is it's an overview of a book that's going scene by scene, chapter by chapter, scene by scene. And you can get as you know detailed as you want. Um, but overall, you're charting like what happens to every single character in each scene or each chapter. And you're you're following each theme and you're maybe tracking the location or how, uh, how long, you know, how much time has passed over each scene. And I work in a spreadsheet. You could put it in whatever format you want, but you know, part of it is like going in and recording moment by moment what's happening. You're going to see stuff just by doing that. But then when you also go back and you actually look at the document you've created that's this book map, you will see gaps there. You'll see like, oh, wow, like character, this character has not been on the page for like six chapters. And I kind of thought they were like a main character. I wonder like if I need to fix that or like these two characters are in conflict, but then suddenly it gets resolved. Like that didn't feel natural. Maybe I need to go back three chapters and start planting those seeds or whatever it is. It's just a really visual, objective way to look at the book. That's awesome. I am all for it. As a Scrivener user, I am a big fan of like the corkboard portion where you can have little, I mean, I have even done a physical corkboard where there's like, this is happening and then this is happening. And being able to write non-linearly is is like a gift. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who's writing long form fiction in word should consider Scrivener. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, it's just impossible not to get caught up in like a line, a line of text or like a word. Like, I, I just don't think it's human to like read through it and take anything that meaningful away at the chapter level or the 
book level or the scene level. You just are going to get caught up in the language of it. And when you see it broken up into those little note cards on your corkboard or into your book map on an Excel sheet, like you just, you see it in a different way and you can kind of put away the language and the, the choice of what you're going to call each thing or how you're going to phrase each thing and actually focus on telling the story or explaining the idea. I'm assuming it also really helps with continuity because yes. that's something that I've talked to for with a couple of people. We had Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Smith on talking about editing and like basic developmental editing, editing and, and catching like you call this character Jane in the first chapter, but suddenly she's Joan in chapter eight. Absolutely. Like, you know, book mapping seems like it would save that really easily. Yeah. A lot of times I'll make a book map and then from there I'll kind of pull out little elements and make a Bible or, you know, like a checklist that I want to go back and really fine tune those kind of things. That's awesome. So we'll have, we'll have links in the show notes to that, but um, I did want to highlight that because I think structure, that's the sort of thing that helps my editing brain feel soothed. <laughs> When working on a story, like, oh, look, I can make these Excel spreadsheets or do these kinds of things. So that means everything's going to be okay. So now it's okay if I do that crazy free writing where I don't know where it's going to go exactly. And balancing those two sides. It's so easy for writers to get, to worry about that fine tuning pretty stuff. And it's just like, that's great. And I, I understand the compulsion to do that, but it's, it's not what's going to elevate your book. It's five steps back from, that sentence that you wrote it's like that daydream that you had about what is your character doing or that progression from one chapter to the other that feels a little off if you go back and change that that's what's going to elevate your book and then you can worry about the word choice or you know what you call a character or whatever yeah I, I think the naming and the word choice is just so addictive well, it's like something you can check off. Like you feel like I made a decision. I made a little improvement there. That's nice. And it's, it's like a little satisfying, like checking your email or something and be like, nope, no new emails. Good on me. Like I'm on top of that. Like, yeah, you're on top of that. But like you forgot about the main thing you set out to do, which was tell a story like that people can follow and get excited about. No, it's true. It's true. We like want to, we so desperately want to feel like we're being productive. Yeah. And also, I think those are deeper problems to solve. Like, I can go through the thesaurus and figure out, like, what's the perfect word here? And that's a small, simple, containable problem. If you tell me, I, I kind of think these two characters are serving the same purpose, and I really didn't understand what either of them had to do with the main storyline. That's like a gulp, like, what do I do kind of problem. And so, Having the book map as like a tool of like, okay, I'm just going to go through and like sit with this and see what pops out. And there's, there's a way to look at this. I don't know what it is, but there is a structure here. Like that's helpful, but it, it is a deeper, harder piece of the project. <laughs> yeah. That's a really hard thing to write on a to-do list. Like find alternative word for slimy is, you know, I can check that right off as you said, but you know, figure out why John and Bob are really similar and don't get along in the thing. That's, I don't even know how to write that down. Like fixed yeah. character. Yeah. A lot of times when I write an editorial letter to a writer, I have like, I'll try to divide it between like, here's some plot issues, here's some theme issues, here's some character issues or whatever it is. So it feels like here's some categories, here's some like structure to where I'm seeing issues. But then I do a uh, recommended next steps at the end, which is sort of like a bulleted, 
if you do nothing else, start here and tackle this one change because that alone will make your book better or whatever and go through in this order. And I do that for myself too. Like if I see I have a lot to do, I'll make a list of one, I like to make a list of things that are working so that I don't just like beat up on myself and I can feel like, okay, I don't want to lose these parts. These parts are working. And then I also make a list of like, okay, from like most important to least important, what am I going to go in and do? If all I do today is take out this one character or see what happens if I change this scene, like that's enough, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's clearly a benefit of having worked on 300 books to be able to give yourself that kind of feedback and just to have done that feedback that much. If somebody's just starting out, how do you recommend that they reflect on their own work so that they can get that kind of insight about what needs to happen? A couple of things I would recommend not working totally on your own. Go go find a writer's group. You know, there's a lot of really encouraging, warm writing groups that can give you that initial feedback. And, you know, you don't want to find a group that's just, you can find a group that's just cheerleaders, but maybe you don't want to find a group that's just cheerleaders. You want to find people that can give you honest feedback on, and they might not have any idea how to solve the problems, but they will be able to tell you when they started tuning out. And that's, that's pretty key to me when I'm doing a read through and I notice that I'm skimming or I'm starting to get like sleepy or whatever. I'm like circling that, that area. Cause that's, probably something needs to change there. I got lost or I just stopped caring or whatever. The other thing is finding finding someone that you can read your story aloud to, like someone that understands what you're trying to do, has a has a vision for where this book could go. That's important. You know, you don't want to read your picture book to someone that hasn't read a picture book in 30 years and does not know what a picture book is. Um, or, you know, you don't want to read a sci-fi novel to someone that only reads romances. But, like, find someone that you can read it aloud to. And I think read it aloud to yourself and read it aloud to them because there's just something about reading it aloud that slows everything down. It lets you hear where you get bored. It lets you hear where the other person is kind of tuning out. It just it gives you a lot of feedback that way. That sounds really helpful. I have worked with writers groups and it does make a huge difference. I think it's also good to know the sort of intricacies of the children's book market. Because one thing I think most people don't know, and I only learned this more recently because a friend was working on the text for a children's book, is that if you write it, you're not necessarily and probably not going to pick the illustrator. Correct. Yeah, it's it's a weird um, dynamic. In general, I think publishing is a really collaborative endeavor, and especially children's publishing. You're working really closely, the writer, the editor, the art director, the designer, the illustrator, plus the marketing team that's going to come eventually. Like All these people are contributing to the book, and so it becomes something bigger than what it was originally. And that's great and amazing, but it's also really hard to wrap your head around that sometimes. Like it's, of course you are visualizing what's happening in your brain when you're writing and you're doing it right if you are, because you're, if you're writing a picture book, you're doing something, it's a visual medium. You need to think about where is the spread going to end? What's happening? Is something, are you putting your characters in a different location in each spread? Are they doing something physically interesting um, or are they just sitting in a room the entire book or whatever so you're thinking those things through but then 
eventually you have to pull yourself out of that and just trust that the illustrator who is an expert at illustrating the way hopefully you are an expert at writing is going to have an even bigger, more interesting vision for that book. So if somebody was interested in writing a children's book and wanted to submit it, would you recommend that they submit it with no pictures at all and that it should be able to stand on its own with no pictures? Or if they mock something up to sort of explain where they picture the pictures going? Traditionally, um, writers would submit with no illustrations, no mock-up, and they might have like the very faintest of art notes. Like if there's truly something that is happening illustratively that is not on the is not in the text then that's okay you know you can explain that but even if you're choosing like is the character a boy or is the character gorilla the illustrator might decide it's a porcupine or that the story actually takes place in africa or wherever like there's going to be these choices that get made and it's it's not going to seem right at first because that wasn't in your original vision but it's going to seem right to the reader um and that's what matters eventually, is what the reader takes away from the book. Yeah, the one that's popping into my head where you'd need to give notes is like Miss Nelson is Missing, where it's never overtly stated, I don't think. I haven't read it recently, but I love that book. And it's about a substitute teacher who comes in when a class is being really bad. And it becomes clear that it's actually the original teacher in a different costume posing as a different teacher. And mm-hmm. you do, you find this out because you see her house, I think, at the end, and there's like a little edge of the costume sticking out of her closet. And I don't think that would have that would have been something that someone would give as a note, right? I think it could depend. I mean, honestly, that I don't know the history of that book, but it could have been something that came up as a stroke of inspiration for the illustrator. It might have been something that the writer pitched as like, this is my vision for it. Um, either way would make sense. I think also there are there are always going to be revisions when the text goes into the publisher. Like you're always making your best effort to not write text that is just repeating what the illustrations are going to show. So, you know, you don't need to explain that it's a blonde boy or a boy with curly brown hair. Like the illustration is going to show that. So take those words out. You want to be economical. But they might have been in there in the original manuscript and came out. And those words, let's hope, were not in there. But maybe the words like, and she looks suspiciously like the original teacher, you know, those words might have been in there. Yeah, it's just interesting. So how has it been for you, you know, writing your own picture books and then giving up control, having been on sort of the editorial side? How is it to watch yours get illustrated? It's tricky. I I am a visual thinker, and I think I have I have thoughts to share, <laughs> but I try to keep them inside. Um, I'm working on a series right now that might be very visual, um, and for those in particular books, I had to mock them up because it was just it was too hard to explain them without art notes. But that's pretty rare, and I try to just trust that the other people on the other side know what they're doing. <laughs> It is really amazing to me, though, that that's part of that, because we look at children's books, or at least I do, getting them for nieces and nephews and think, oh, these these two people came up with it together over coffee and a thing and they put it together. And, you know, I'm involved with an illustrator. So I think we think about, oh, we could do a project and maybe we would. But it sounds like a publisher wouldn't want anything to do with us having already figured it all out. 
Yeah, yeah. And a part of it's like a logistical thing, you know, publishers want to work with illustrators that they know are dependable, that they know are professional, that deliver on time, that are hot, that are like selling well. Um, so they have their favorite list that they want to turn to. And it may not be your best friend or whoever, <laughs> but it's also um, that those people are really good at what they do. And they just add layers to it that writers don't. And that's a good thing. It's it's a weird thing and kind of out of our control, but it's a good thing. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, there are many things that go out of your control when you publish a book. So it's probably good to be prepared for that. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things also that you're working on, which is sort of the intersection, which to me is really fascinating, of writers and Instagram is something that you've been playing with. Because you know, of course, we know there's lots of writers on Twitter because it's a visual, it's a, you know, a word medium. But as much as I enjoy Instagram myself, I'm curious about how you see that as a really good platform for authors to get sort of build community. Yeah, it, that's a good word of building community. I think that's part of it. Um, I've always been someone that hates Twitter. I can't really get into it. I've done it a little bit after conferences or like a trade show or something to keep in contact with people, but I don't enjoy it. I feel like I'm just kind of shouting out into a black hole and that's not fun or satisfying. And I started using Instagram just sort of like in a curious, like, what is this thing kind of way. And it felt much warmer and more welcoming it was a community and there's like a thriving community of people that love books on instagram i mean like love love books like <laughs> obsessed obsessed with books yes and they're they're readers there's publishers there's editors there's writers um there's people that just freaking love books like <laughs> all the time and so it's inspiring to see that. First of all, they're beautifully photographed half the time. And, and then just see people being effusive about it. It's the opposite experience of like downloading a Kindle book from Amazon in your bedroom and not talking to anyone about the book. And it's black and white and digital and like in cyberspace, you know, like you're seeing these beautiful physical books and they're being celebrated and people are excited for each other, their successes and to read each other's books. That's that's a nice feeling. And I think it is a place that writers can market what they're doing, um, market their, they can show their process, they can show their personality, their philosophy, whether you're a writer or an editor, you can share sort of behind the scenes. And it doesn't all have to just be photos of your computer or like you typing or whatever. I think that's where a lot of people get hung up is thinking like, okay, if I'm going to use this to market my services or my books, um, what do I actually show? And Instagram is all about the picture. So you need to show a pretty picture, but the caption can be really personal or it can be kind of a surprising take on what you're showing. Um, you can show your daily life. You can show small moments. You can show pretty things and then talk about the philosophy behind why that image resonates with you or what you are doing at that moment or whatever it is. And so I created this class. It's a six week online workshop and it just walks you through the basics of Instagram, but also how to use it in a way that builds confidence so that you're feeling good about what you're putting out there. And also the other thing I tell people, and this sounds, it sounds a little bit trivial, but I think it's actually the reason I keep using Instagram too. It's not, it doesn't feel just like this thing on my marketing to-do list. It's something I enjoy. 
And it's when I look back at my feed and I see everything that I've posted, like I feel good. I feel proud of what I've put out there. And it's a visual record of what I've created. And when you're a writer or an editor, you're doing very abstract work. You're doing kind of invisible work a lot of times. And it's hard to show people like this is what I do and this is what I believe in. And then when you see it, visualized over these months or years on Instagram, it just, it's a nice feeling. It, it gives you confidence to keep going. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't, I've never thought of it that way, but it, it is that way. And I love Instagram also, but I studied photography along with getting into editing and writing. So it's always sort of been in the mix, but I do, I credit Instagram with sort of wanting to create moods and all of the sort of atmosphere around writing. But I also think in some ways, Instagram is protecting the print book a little bit because it's way more fun. I have found myself many times saying, well, I want to get the hard copy of this book because it'll look cooler in my Instagram than, than reading it from the library on my Kindle. Totally. And, you know, I go into the bookstore and like it, we have a Barnes & Noble in our town. It's never that crowded, you know, like it's there and I'm really grateful it's there, but it's not the vibrant center of our community. But you go on Instagram and you're like, oh yeah, people are reading and this is what they're reading. And this is what people are getting super excited about. And these are trends and these are like, I need to read that book next. And you get excited when you see someone go from like that very early manuscript all the way to being published. Like that's a great feeling to, to witness that. And it's, it's a nice community. Yeah, I find it, I use Twitter because I feel like there is so much going on literarily on it, but I am way more of an Instagram user myself. Yeah, yeah. It's and just it's easier. Just like picture books, it's like you you really do have that instant visceral reaction to a photo, like whether you want to or not. It's just unconscious and you're scrolling through and you understand who someone is so much faster. Like I got to know you that way in some ways. And I feel like people that I don't even know have gotten to know who I am to some degree just by kind of seeing my pictures every day and getting a feel for who I am and what it would be like to work with me or what do I think is a fun thing to do on the weekends or, or what do I, what am I passionate about? They, they see that whether I want them to or not. And I do, but they do see that. And I think they see it in a way that's like, you just can't get by skimming through Twitter. Like, for me, at least. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think we are inherently visual creatures, whether we want to admit we are or not. I mean, as someone else who enjoys picking up a 500 page book, I do like it when it has a pretty cover. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> like uh, Jesse Burton's book that just came out, the second book, she wrote The Miniaturist. And then the second one is called The Muse. That cover is so I good. Know. <laughs> I know. So I'm just like, ah, oh, cover. It's just like, okay, I know I'm going to be staring at the little words inside the whole time I'm reading it, but it's just nice to have a pretty cover. Yeah. And I think it's good for writers, like as much as you don't want to get caught up in that, like, oh, what's the critic going to say? Or what's the reader going to say? And I don't want to get weighed down by that. It's, it is also good to think about like, where is your book going to be sold? It's going to be sold with its cover out on the shelf. That's how people are going to encounter it. Whether it's like, the little mini image on Amazon or it's in an actual independent bookstore with your book on the shelf, that initial impression is going to be visual. And so you might as well own that and like have some other elements around that and not just be like book cover, book cover, book cover, like show them other pieces of your process and in your world and who you are. 
Yeah, I think getting an atmosphere or a lifestyle or or something so that they're invested. I mean, you want your book to sell, so mm-hmm. you might as yeah. well get people who are psyched up to buy it. Yeah, yeah. It's weird for writers. And I mean, I, I don't think it comes naturally to probably very many people to sell your stuff over and over. But you, if you went to the trouble of writing it and you believe in it, you might as well give it the best chance to succeed that you can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I know this has been incredibly helpful um, for anyone who may be writing children's books or any other kind of book, actually, because I can see applications for everything. And it's always good to have somebody who's been on both sides of the writer and the editor divide. It's not even really a divide because there are so many of us. It's like being on two teams at the same time. I like that. (laughs) I almost feel like I should have different t-shirts, like one that says writer and one that says editor and be like, okay, which team am I playing for today so that I can just sign up for that or have costumes? Yeah, I I kind of find that I almost like work I, when I'm editing. I'm in my office. I'm working at the desk. But when I'm really writing, like I'm not just making revisions, but I'm like really doing something scary or deep or whatever. I end up leaving the house or I go to the kitchen table and write there or something. It is like you do need to have that separation. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, try different locations. I think that's a, that's one that I should try. But um. I want to thank you so much for coming on. It was really great talking to you. And I know everyone's going to get so much out of hearing what you had to say. Thank you. It's really nice talking to you too. And I am excited to be here. And I love just, I like talking to book people. That's how I felt when I came on today was I was like, oh, I'm going to be talking to a book person. And that's always nice. Thanks again to Muse Monthly for sponsoring the show. Remember, if you use the code SECRET00, with secret all caps, you can get 10% off your subscription at musemonthly.com. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.